Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. That was Tommy Morello getting us started, singing one of his many songs of freedom. Like you, Tom chooses to stand consistently and generously on the freedom side, creating a steady drumbeat and a soundtrack toward freedom. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malik Aleem and I are gathered here with you for our seminar on freedom. We take inspiration from the Freedom Schools, brilliantly brought to life in Mississippi in 1964. But finding expressions in workplaces today, in schools and community centers, prison, and amazingly, even on death row, anywhere and any time, people come together to create an insurgent and beloved community and ask once more the fundamental questions, where in the world are we and where are we in the world? How can we name this political, social, historical moment? What is to be done now in our ongoing search for freedom? We're bound together in this fugitive space, looking uneasily at the world we've inherited and busy in projects of repair and revolution. This is Light Ailee. Lawrence Ferlinghetti died on February 22nd at the age of 101. He was one of the founders and leading prophets of the Beats, those rebel poets who revolutionized the poetic space by inviting the beat of the streets and the bang smack of jazz to take center stage. More than 20 years ago, Ferlinghetti wrote a long lyrical piece in answer to the perennial question, what is poetry? Here are a few lines from the legend. Poetry is news from the frontiers of consciousness. Poetry is the street talk of angels and devils. Poetry is the anarchy of the senses making sense. Poetry is all things born with wings that sing. Poetry is what exists between the lines. Poetry is made with the syllables of dreams. Poetry fits on a single page, yet it can fill a world and fits in the pocket of a heart. Poetry is the shadow cast by our streetlight imaginations. Like a bowl of roses, a poem should not have to be explained. Poetry should still be an insurgent knock on the door of the unknown and on and on and on. Our poem today is by one of the early beat poets, Diane de Prima, who passed away late last year. And the poem is from her book, Revolutionary Letters. This is revolutionary letter number two. The value of an individual life, a credo they taught us to instill fear and inaction. You only live once. A fog in our eyes, we are endless as the sea, not separate. We die a million times a day. We are born a million times. Each breath, life and death. Get up. Put on your shoes. Get started. Someone will finish. Tribe. An organism, one flesh, breathing joy as the stars breathe destiny down on us. Get going, join hands, see to business. Thousands of sons will see to it when you fall. You will grow a thousand times in the bellies of your sisters. 
Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write, where we encourage you to create a short, authentic, and spontaneous piece from nowhere. The nowhere of the underground, the nowhere of under the tree, and the nowhere of utopia. Here is today's prompt. To be ruled is to be indoctrinated and sermonized, listed and corrected, inspected and sorted, regulated and spied upon, counted and registered, noted and checked off, admonished, prevented, and ordered about. So if this is to be ruled, to be unfree, what is it to be free? Start writing, and we'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews, and follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Hey, this is Malik Alim, and I come to you today with a kind of snapshot of very recent history, a freedom chronicle, if you will. It's been just about five years since the summer of 2016 when the Let Us Breathe Collective launched Freedom Square, a 41-day overnight occupation, protest encampment, and block party opposing Holman Square, the CPD black site, where thousands of Chicagoans have been illegally detained and tortured. Initially, the collective launched the occupation at the corner of Holman and Fillmore on Chicago's west side in support of BYP 100 civil disobedience blockade, which shut down police traffic in and out of the facility. That encampment grew into a community laboratory for police abolition and divestment, providing free clothes, free books, free meals, free arts programming, for the children of North Lawndale, and free sleeping tents for community members, protesters, and neighborhood residents experiencing homelessness. Freedom Square was built on the principle that the resources necessary to keep communities safe are restorative justice, education, employment, housing, mental health, and physical wellness, addiction treatment, access to nutritional food, and art. So it's been five years since Freedom Square. And since then, the Let Us Breathe Collective has started operating the Breathing Room Space, which is an arts and healing and organizing liberation space uh, on the south side of Chicago in the back of the Yards neighborhood. Inside the Breathing Room right now, there's a weathered and worn piece of painted plywood or particle board or something like that. And the board reads, Brave Space Agreements. By entering this space, I agree to love myself and others. I agree to be accountable for what I do and say. I agree to struggle against racism, sexism, ageism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, classism, misogyny, shame, and other harmful systems. I agree to handle conflict with love and respect and without calling police. I agree that my gifts bring value to the space and I receive the gifts the space offers me. This board lived at Freedom Square during the occupation. In a minute, I'm going to read a kind of final reflection you can find on the collective's website that was published when the occupation concluded. But first, I want you to consider the implications of that agreement about handling conflict without calling police and what it means to try to make the real world a more brave space. We got to understand that it takes bravery to reject the scarcity mindset and allow yourself to give and receive in the spirit of abundance. 
And those of us who are scared, skeptical, and or distrustful of the police have a duty to actually imagine and experiment with better ways to deal not only with conflict, but with the barriers to abundance. Because our lives and our prosperity depend on it. All right, so the following reflection shares some of the challenges of the Freedom Square occupation and our experience with putting our bodies on the line to embody an abolitionist politic and imagine a world without police. Chicago, September 1st, 2016. On August 31st, the sleeping tents at Freedom Square slowly, sadly came down. The first aid canopy came down. The arts and crafts canopy came down. The free clothing store, free library, and pantry still stand with some produce ready to throw in the grill. The basil is growing strong in the garden. Across from Home and Square, the tent city occupation was a spontaneous decision born out of a spectacle of civil disobedience. We at the Let Us Breathe Collective had only six small tents, a grill, a will to love Lawndale beyond shutting down traffic for a couple of hours in front of the notorious CPD black site, and a vision for a world without police. We had no meetings, no budget, no dedicated staff, just a handful of people who were willing to camp out. We didn't know if we'd hold it through the night, but hoped the goal of opposing Blue Lives Matter legislation, calling out the illegal detention and torture happening across the street, and building consciousness for abolitionist politics would garner support. We figured however long we could hold the space, we'd use it as a tool to give out free clothes, free books, free food, and cold water to the community. What we failed to do early on was implement tangible accountability protocols for ourselves and the community members that came through the space. We posted our Brave Space agreements and used them as guidelines for how we treat the space and each other, but we had no concrete mechanism beyond peace circles for handling conflict. And when the children of Freedom Square began asking their parents to camp with us, we welcomed an opportunity to build a village on tenets of political education and art making but we had no structured childcare for what became a 24-hour youth engagement center. Still, a diverse array of workshops from Roomba to zine making to screen printing to science to journalism and so much more kept them engaged for blocks of time, but the moment-to-moment -moment cleaning, building, and maintenance of the space stretched organizer capacity to our limits, and we simply could not give kids structured attention every moment of the day. How do you hold your cousin accountable when he's calling black women who come volunteer on the grill stupid bitches? After you've had all the accountability talks, when the behavior doesn't change, how do you enforce consequences without replicating the punitive power structures you're there to oppose? How do you keep teenage boys from throwing rocks on what used to be a vacant lot where they always threw rocks before you got there? How do you ban someone from a space you don't own? How do you send a child home when their family has locked them out? Freedom Square accomplished more beautiful things in each of its 41 days than we can name. We built relationships with survivors of home we built relationships with survivors of home and square torture. We fed 200 to 300 people a day. We taught kids pottery and about Asada Shakur. We chanted, we marched, we roasted marshmallows. And in every moment we stood for love, no matter how violent or chaotic things became. The Freedom Square occupation was a laboratory for the politics of abolition. We were building what we're in favor of, not protesting what we're opposed to. Organizers had the opportunity to co-create a new society within the shell of the old, a world where it was easier for people to share their gifts without intimidation. It was a product, it was a project of liberation, and most of the structures that society has taught us are not liberating. 
the occupation did not end because we ran out of energy or we were overwhelmed by the logistics of the site. It ended because it illustrated the tension between the world as it is and the world as we imagine it to be. Meanwhile, on Holman and Fillmore, we continue to stand for love, fight for freedom, and build community. It's time now for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, Academics, and Artists After Hours, where we talk to people who we hope will help us think more deeply and clearly about the world we inhabit, help us name this political moment, and take the necessary steps toward creating an irresistible movement for freedom and justice. We release our most radical imaginations and ask both what's going on and then, equally important, what is to be done. I'm delighted today to be joined by Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law. Maya is the editor-in-chief of Truth Out, the author of Lockdown, Locked Out, and the co-editor of the anthology, Who Do You Serve? Who Do You Protect? Victoria Law is a freelance journalist, the author of Resistance Behind Bars, and co-editor of Don't Leave Your Friends Behind. She's a co-founder of New York City Books Through Bars and lives in New York. I guess I thank you both for being here. I'm really delighted to talk with you. Your book blew my mind, so I appreciate oh. you. <laughs> thank you. But don't laugh. Well, I was we're just gonna, thinking. We're going to edit. We're going to edit you out, Matt, Maya, for laughing. Uh, well, you taught kidding. me how to write a book, so I oh, like... I, well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. No, the book is mind blowing. I want to get to the book, but before we do, I want to ask you each something a little bit uh, off script, and that is. How's your kids doing? Um, tell me one story about um, about Kai, and then tell me one story about Su Ling. Su Long. Is Su that, how do you Long. pronounce it? You got it right the second time. Su Long. Okay. So, so I want you to tell me one story about Kai and one story about Su Long. Okay. okay. Sure. We're affirming our humanity here yes. as well as talking politics. That's so refreshing. So one story about Kai... I'll pick one from yesterday. And we were building a tower. He he initiated the building of a tower right before he was supposed to be going to bed, very strategically. And he really loves books about construction vehicles. And so he was assigning me to be various construction vehicles, delivering supplies to build this tower. And he said he was a crane and he said, I'm a crane and I just ran out of supplies to build my tower flatbed truck, where are you to bring me supplies? And I said, here I am, I'm flatbed truck and I have your supplies to build your building. And he said, great, could you put the eggs down there and the butter down there and the syrup down over there? And I was like, oh, I thought we were building a building. And he was like, no mama, we're building French toast. <laughs> right on. That's perfect. Like, oh. <laughs> and tell folks how old Kai is. Kai is two and a half. And this is half of our conversations is just like this endlessly shifting stream of consciousness, like imagining different worlds that are all blending together. 
<laughs> you know what I love to, I love about two-year-olds? I mean, I love folks at all ages, including old folks like me. But what I love about two-year-olds is they answer the question so vividly, uh, what's the meaning of life? And the meaning of life is to live, mm-hmm. full tilt, <laughs> facing forward, charging onward. And two and a half is like perfect. But Kai is delightful. So I'm delighted to hear that story. I, I have to tell you at the risk of being professorial, do you know the books of David Macaulay, the big graphic books? No. Okay. They're not two and a half year old books, but they're things in your future. He's written these giant books, graphic books uh, about things like unbuilding. He has one book called Unbuilding. He has one book called City. And it's just the most elaborate drawings of the layers of a city. He has a book called Pyramids. But Kai will come to love Unbuilding, um, a fascinating cool. book. Um, so yeah, that's my that's my professorial recommendation. Oh, that sounds great. I hope I don't do this to I hope I don't this do this to you, Vicky. But <laughs> tell us a quick story about your daughter. Okay. Well, my daughter is twenty, so I don't have cute cute you know stream of consciousness stories about her <laughs> because she is at the age where she is uh, sometimes communicative, often not that communicative. Uh, so our you know stories. Uh, we tried to get Vietnamese food the other day and it was very disappointing. Uh, and she was just, uh, uh, she was fine with it. She was pleased with it. Uh, but we got Vietnamese food. We sat down, we ate. And then I think she was kind of ready to be done with me at, at, at the end of the meal. She was like, okay, you know, now, now, now you can go back to doing whatever it is that you do. And I don't want to be, you know, and I can go back to doing whatever it is I do in my room. One of the great things about 20 year olds is you're about to discover that uh, you can be adult friends suddenly. Uh And one of the great joys of having grown children is when you transition from adolescence to young adulthood. um, There comes a moment when you actually are more like peers and it's pretty exciting, pretty a different form of intimacy. Maya's far from it. You're right on the, uh-huh. on the cusp of it. I'm hoping that once she, she graduates college, perhaps we will have moved more into that where I don't feel this uh, need a, to be. That's exactly when it happens. And, and the thing for me, uh, one of the critical moments was um, when my oldest son was about to graduate mm-hmm. from college and he read a manuscript that I'd written. And he said, would you mind if I edited this? Hmm. And uh, my God, we were suddenly having an adult relationship. You know, he was editing my oh, writing. Whoa. and Yeah, it was, <laughs> was mind blowing. And he did a very good job. He did a very good job. The one thing is he kept wanting to take, it was a memoir and he kept wanting to take all the sketchy parts, whether it was about sex or drugs, he wanted all that shit out. And I'm saying, no, no, it's my story. You know, what are you going to do? Uh-huh. Anyway, madness. Um, That's fantastic. It's it's so great to have you both here. And the fact that you are, that we started with parenting and with mothering uh, is absolutely sensible from my point of view, because you have written a book that I think is a must read. It's prison by any other name. Um, and the subtitle is the harmful consequences of popular reforms. And it's not only a, a, a kind of a, a challenge to common sense, to the dogma of common mm-hmm. sense, but it's also so infused with your humanity, with your sense of what it means to be a human being, your generous sense of that. So I, I wanted to, I guess, dive into the book and I'd like to march through it as, as far as we can in the time we have. But I'd like to begin by by asking you what brought you to write it, what brought you to collaborate and what your greatest aspiration for the book is. What do you hope it changes in the world? 
All right, Maya, we forgot to flip Are our coin doing, beforehand. Yeah, we <laughs> usually flip a coin on who's going to talk first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you want to start or should I? Sure. I can start and then you can, uh, how about I start with the how we came to write this book and then you could talk about our aspirations for abolition. Oh, okay. Sounds okay. Good. So, uh, so in 2015, Maya, so uh, to back up, Maya is the editor-in-chief of Truthout. I am a regular contributor at Truthout about prison issues, particularly uh, women's prison issues, but sometimes folks of other genders behind bars. And in 2015, Maya and I were see- both seeing from our different points of journalism uh, this new trends towards prison reform and letting people out of prison and there being too many people in prison. And we started to get excited about this momentum until we saw that a lot of this momentum was leading towards kinder, gentler types of imprisonment outside of the physical buildings that are called jails and prisons. So we were seeing, uh, you know, solutions being proposed like electronic monitoring, uh, years, if not decades, of probation, um, sex offender registries, involuntary drug uh, treatment centers and psychiatric treatment centers. And what we were seeing looked a lot like prisons, except that they were not called prisons. This was when Obama was president. Everybody was talking about how we incarcerated way too many people. People should not, some people should not be in prison. They should be in other types of institutions. Uh, they were, uh, people were talking and acknowledging that there was a giant racial disparity in who was arrested, who was prosecuted, who was imprisoned. Uh, so it could have been a moment that was seized for pushing abolitionist views. And what we were seeing instead was a very dismaying trend of the right and the left getting together and advocating for prison-like solutions. So we started to uh, write this book based on this idea that uh, we should not be advocating for solutions that look very much like prisons and instead should be looking at and advocating for solutions that actually address root causes of uh, violence and harm and also work to transform society so people's needs are met instead of them having to uh, engage in criminalized actions to survive and possibly end up in one type of cage or another. So the reforms looked to you like cosmetic, not deep, changing names, but not changing realities or, or changing realities in very superficial ways. Yes. And not addressing any of the root causes either. Gotcha. Maya. Yeah, exactly. I think that One of the things that we came to realize in starting to think through what we wanted this book to look like is that police are never just people with guns and badges. Social workers can do policing through the child protective services system, through the mental health system. Teachers can do policing and are deployed to do policing in schools. And I love the interview you did with Crystal Laura, who has done so much work around this, how, you know, our educational system is 
built in a manner that supports the prison nation, that supports all these these carceral systems. So we need to be pushing back on that as well. We see policing happening within our hospitals, within our health system. And so so we want to kind of be be pushing people forward and thinking about the way that policing manifests throughout our society and and prison does too spaces of confinement and punishment are replicated in in all of these different ways in the world in in which we live and once we start questioning that i think the exciting thing and you asked you know what do we want our book to do i think the exciting thing is once you start questioning that all of these other possibilities open up. You have to really challenge your imagination <laughs> to think beyond, you know, okay, what do we do if all of the major institutions in our society are not built around control and restriction and limitation and judgment? You have to go the other direction. You have to think about how to how do we create abundance? How do we create real opportunity? And also, you know, prisons are spaces of isolation. Police are spaces, are agents of cutting off. So how do we foster relationship building and connection? And those are questions that we need to ask ourselves in terms of, you know, building a larger society. But there are also questions that we we want to ask ourselves in terms of how we conduct our our everyday lives. And I know that in writing our book, you know, we we started out thinking about it in terms of challenging specific reforms and pushing back on that tendency and specific reforms to do the things that prison policing do prop up white supremacy, prop up colonialism, and also prop up mechanisms of control and confinement and punishment. But as we were writing and interviewing and thinking through how all of those things happen in terms of reform, we started thinking about, well, how do they manifest in our everyday lives? You know, and you have to think about, okay, how does this manifest in my parenting? How does this manifest in the way we relate to our neighbors? You know, one of the big things that kept coming up when we asked activists, like, what are the alternatives? The, one of the big things that kept coming up was get to know your neighbors. You know, you can you can challenge these reforms and challenge these systems of oppression by actually building relationships in your community and creating something that's different than isolation and policing each other and depending on oppressive systems for safety. So yeah, in thinking about what we want our, our book to do, I think one of the things is just spark those those questions in people and those possibilities for imagination. So you want to spark questions, you want to open up our imaginations. And I think you want to, if, if, if you reach your highest aspiration, you would change the way we think about the underlying narratives that lead to a carceral society. The narratives themselves are wrong. And I read it on almost every page that the underlying narratives, you mentioned white supremacy, capitalism, colonialism, etc. But the whole notion of 
mistakes or crimes equal punishment. Punishment equals the cage, if not the cage, the alternative cage. And I think that's a narrative that you really take on head on, as well as through so many detailed specifics that it becomes a really compelling case. And I guess what I'd like you to do is talk a bit about those specifics. I mean, so it's not just we're challenging white supremacy. Give us some examples of how this works in the prison system, in the welfare system, in the schools. You mentioned schools, Maya, um, in drug treatment. Give us a few examples from your book. One of the examples that we're <laughs> that we're uh, that, that we look at early on in the book is electronic monitoring, and I bring this up because last year at the start of the coronavirus pandemic in the United States, there was talk about decarceration or letting people out of jails and prisons so that that way they weren't overcrowded dormitories and cramped cell blocks where the virus, once it entered, which it would, when, because staff still go in and out every day, would just explode behind bars. And in some jurisdictions like Cook County, where Maya lives and, uh, and places in Wisconsin and other jurisdictions, instead of just saying, there is no need to keep this entire dormitory in this jail dormitory uh, because they can't afford $500 or less bail. Let's just let them go home, give them their court date. Their court date might not be for six months because courts are closed. And instead, what they did was they ordered them to be released on electronic monitoring. So instead of being able to go home shelter at home with their family or their loved ones, try to rebuild their lives, try to get a job in a pandemic, you know, impacted economy or do other things. Instead, they were shackled to an electronic monitor, which is a, uh, usually it is a shackle on your ankle that has a GPS device that pings a company that tells that company where you are at any given time. And you are not allowed to leave your house without prior approval. Often that approval can take days, if not up to a week to get. So you have to say Tuesday from 8 to 9 a.m., I am going to go to the Walmart to go grocery shopping and I will be back in my house by 9.05 a.m. And that doesn't work during non-pandemic times because there are things like traffic jams and long lines and things happen in the world uh, emergencies happen and you have to leave the house. But what ends up happening during the pandemic is it drastically limits people's ability to be able to do the things that they need to do for their households. During the pandemic, people bought up all the toilet paper and pasta and bread. And if you are only allowed to go to one supermarket at one time and you cannot go down the block to the next supermarket, you then have to go home empty handed and hope that another family member or a neighbor will be kind enough to be able to go out and get you these items and go from store to store to find these panic bought items. If you need to go get medical care, uh, you have to sometimes face the choice between violating the terms of your electronic monitor and to leave the house to get medical care or staying in and violating those terms means you will be sent back to the COVID-filled jail or prison, um, what even for a short period of time, but still you would be in this position again where you are more likely to catch COVID. And then in Chicago, uh, Cook County ran out of monitors. And instead of saying, well, we don't have enough monitors, we'll let people go home 
and not be monitored. They said, well, you've been ordered to be released, but you need to stay in jail until a monitor becomes available for us to clamp to your ankle. And then you can be released from these uh, COVID-filled conditions. So we see how this, quote unquote, nicer, kinder, gentler solution actually works to not only reinforce systems of surveillance and confinement, but during a pandemic that has claimed so many lives can actually put people at greater risk for death during that time. So if it weren't the pandemic, would you say this electronic monitoring is okay? Or you're not really saying <laughs> no, that, right? I am not. Uh, and, you're not and, and also, how do you answer people who say, okay, it's inconvenient, it's terrible, and these are rough times for everybody, but aren't we safer because the criminal justice system is watching these folks? Well, the thing is, we have to remember that the electronic monitoring doesn't prevent people from doing harm. I mean, listeners should think about all of the times in which, think about the past week, if you went to the supermarket and somebody wasn't wearing a mask and got too close to you, or somebody cut you off in traffic, or somebody said something rude, or um, I am Asian, I very much look Asian. If somebody said some nasty anti-Asian thing to me, did I turn around and split their skull open with a meat cleaver? No, I did not. And it's not because I am not, the presence of an electronic monitor would not determine whether or not I did such a thing. So I think that this idea that arrest and some sort of carceral punishment, whether it be jail, prison, electronic monitoring, is going to deter violence, is just, it, it, it's, a, it's a straw man argument because the vast, vast, vast majority of us do not commit harm and violence, not because we fear being locked in a cage or being locked in a, an electronic cage, but because we don't do such things. And for the people who do do such things, they're not thinking in that moment where they pull their meat cleaver out to bash a racist in the head, oh no, I shouldn't do this because I might end up in a cage. So it, it's not a way to keep us safe. And then there have been instances in which people have talked about how uh, people who really wanted to evade electronic monitoring simply cut the monitor off their ankle and left. But what electronic monitoring does is it also widens the net. So again, people who are sitting in jail simply because they couldn't afford $500 in bail for shoplifting or burglary or, you know, uh, violating their probation the first time around because they failed a urine test or they failed to show up to an appointment are now put on this type of surveillance, whereas before they might have just been told, go home, you know, like, you know, go home and don't do it again. So it's a way to increase the net. Because what we're not seeing is people who are um, seen as, quote unquote, the most violent or the most dangerous. And I put those in air quotes uh, by society. What we're seeing is people who might otherwise not be under some sort of uh, surveillance and punishment being put under these types of measures during the pandemic or even not during the pandemic. But you're saying you're, you're in your mind, widening the net is in itself a problem. But I, and, and I want to hear more specifics about what the research says about safety, what the research, what you've learned over your years of reporting on this about questions of safety, questions of what works and so on. But I have to say before I say that, that the specificity of your fantasy of what you were going to do to the racist actually scared me slightly <laughs> um, because it was, it, was, it, was the, it was the deployment of the meat cleaver that got to me in the grocery store. But OK, well, let's leave that alone. Um, 
but but more examples, more and, and this larger question: Why should people be convinced of the, basically the abolitionist argument? What is the abolitionist argument, and what is it that you are campaigning around in terms of wanting something deeper than these reforms that we see on offer? Yeah, I think. Each of the examples that we're looking at, and one of the reasons we go so deep on specificity, is proof of why this system as a whole doesn't work. So, for example, drug courts are consistently on the list of suggestions that mainstream voices are offering us as how to change the system. Joe Biden is a huge proponent of drug courts. His solution to the fact that people are charged with drug possession is to put all of them in treatment, <laughs> you know? So you always hear this refrain, instead of prison, put people in treatment. Mm -hmm. And drug court is in the business of mandating that, mandating that people are put in rehabilitation or else giving people the choice between treatment and prison, which is obviously basically mandated because who wants to go to prison? So there are now more than 3,000 drug courts in the United States. The number of drug courts has skyrocketed over the past two decades. And a lot of people, including Biden and many of the Democrats, would like to continue increasing that. And so thinking about, okay, so what are the issues that we're actually facing that these drug courts are supposed to address? The, the thing that keeps being brought to the forefront is the opioid crisis. You know, how do we deal with the fact that over 70,000 people are dying of drug overdoses every year? And this year, it's definitely going to be many more mm. than that with the pandemic. And so, so we're seeing an actual problem, and this is being proffered as a way to deal with it instead of incarceration, which clearly has not dealt with it because more and more and more people are dying of overdoses. And so, so we think, okay, of course the answer is treatment. It's called treatment. That sounds good. There's an assumption that there's this solution that just translates into people being well. But first of all, most people who use illicit drugs are not addicted to them. So people are arrested for drug possession. The assumption that they're addicted or are using them to harm themselves is fundamentally unsound. It's just not true. Carl Hart, a drug researcher who just came out with a great book and who both of us have interviewed, says that between 70 and 90% of people who use even the most stigmatized drugs like heroin and methamphetamines are not addicted to them. So that's something we have to think about. And then also even people who are struggling with addiction or experiencing harm related to drugs are not served by these coercive systems. Um, first of all, they're sometimes brutal and punitive. We interviewed people who were put in drug treatment who were physically abused there, who were forced to be in a position where they couldn't go to the bathroom. Um, who were deprived of food. Also, though, they're being put in a situation that's completely abstinence-based, 
which cuts against the actual facts around how you deal with addiction, how you deal with overdose. Some of the best treatments for drug addiction and particularly opioid addiction are maintenance treatments where people are receiving some sort of opioid or opioid replacement to to deal with their addiction. And thinking through just the way the way that these drug courts play out, they're putting people in a position where their tolerance is significantly lowered. So if you're addicted to drugs, you have developed a tolerance to those drugs and you know how much you can consume in order to not be in an extremely risky position. And of course, that doesn't always work perfectly. But, you know, there there's this tolerance that builds up. And when people are placed in these situations of confinement or complete abstinence, we're actually putting them at serious risk for dying. And actually, right after our book was released and, you know, Bella, I know you know about this, my sister, who was um, addicted to heroin for many years, was placed in a drug court program and she overdosed and died while she was in that program. And she was being forced to not use drugs and she was not ready (laughs) to stop Mm -hmm. using drugs. And so, of course, she went out and used and she had no tolerance. You know, she she had been severely harmed by being Mm -hmm. put in this program that not only took away her personal autonomy and coerced her and punished her, also ultimately played a major role in leading to her death. And so I think, yes, we need to see these systems as you know, not much better than prison, but we also need to see that they have lethal potential Mm -hmm. and that they are actually hurting people. People who are placed in psychiatric hospitals are re-traumatized. They're often physically abused, sexually abused. They're placed on all kinds of medications that fundamentally alter the way their brains are working in ways that you know, just looking from an objective perspective, we might say that's completely unethical. You're taking away who someone is, you know, and um, changing the way their brain works without their consent. But, you know, so, so I think we need to look also at the ways these systems are harming people in unique ways that even in some ways go beyond prisons and jails, even though obviously the vast majority of people would rather be in any of these alternatives than a prison or a jail. You know, you raised uh, the question of your sister and Keeley was very important to you. And and um, I went through that ending a bit with your family. And that was a very, very difficult, traumatic time for the family. But but maybe you'd say a bit more about Keeley and her situation and also there's kind of two sides to this that I want people to understand. One is that it's inhumane to Keeley and to people mm-hmm. in her situation, but also it's not actually helping society. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it would be one thing if you said, well, that's a, a damn shame about your sister, but I mean, she made bad choices and blah, blah, blah. But society was 
made better because she was removed from society. But that's, mm. I don't think you think that's true. And I think your book is a, is quite a cry against that. So maybe you'd say both, talk a bit about both sides of that in terms of Keeley. Yeah. I mean, man, it's, it's such a tragedy and it provokes so much anger <laughs> <laughs> that I like, right. sometimes become incoherent. But I think... You did that, a wonderful job at the memorial of containing the anger and channeling it beautifully. Oh, thank mm. you. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the thing the thing that I'll say, first of all, is that, you know, Keely was arrested for the first time when she was a young teenager. She was arrested in school um, for drug possession, you know, which also should make us think about all these systems and how school participates Mm -hmm. in policing. And then her entire teenage and adult life, she was just in and out of carceral systems, jail and prison, but also Mm -hmm. electronic monitoring, drug court, hospitals, um also her her daughter got swept up in the child protective services system because of the ways that Keely was criminalized and none of it helped her you know <laughs> so it was like all these things that were supposed to you know scare her straight or you know provide her with help that she didn't want all of them just drove her deeper and deeper into her addiction because a they were traumatizing um and b she she didn't want to stop using drugs and c they didn't help her deal with any of the underlying issues that drove her drug use and she would talk about going to prison and vicky writes about so much of this so powerfully about women's prisons she would go to prison And practically everyone there was a survivor of violence or addicted to drugs or both. And this is who is locked in a cage. So we have this idea of, oh, well, you know, maybe prisons are essential for society at large, you know, to remove people. Well, who are you removing? Removing people who have experienced major traumas of course, disproportionately black and brown people. And when it comes to women, you're incarcerating overwhelmingly survivors of violence, survivors of gender-based violence, and people people who are struggling with drugs and the drug war impacted women like so so overwhelmingly. Mm-hmm. And so who's So who's being impacted by them being removed from society? Well, most of them are mothers, right? Vast majority of them are mothers. 60% of them are mothers of minor children. Those children are, are out in the world without their parents. And by the way, this also applies to some of these other systems we're talking about, like psychiatric confinement and, and drug treatment. You know, in, in many situations, people are being pulled away from their children and, and forced to isolate. So when we talk about the impact on society, you know, we have to talk about the 10 million children uh, who've experienced parental incarceration. We have to talk about 
all of the children who are not being counted, whose parents are impacted by policing, by some of these coercive alternatives. Like, okay, is tearing families apart really, really helping society? And then you have to think about the child protective services system. You know, my niece was removed from her mother when she was two years old. And the idea that that was a help to her and that that was somehow positively influencing her life. No, that was actually like one of the most brutal punishments that you could inflict on a person, you know. And so I think that should also call into question when we're talking about harm and violence and these systems, whether they're alternatives or prisons. Oh, well, they're there to deal with harm and violence. Really, the worst harm and violence that you could be inflicting is happening within these systems. They're killing people, they're tearing families apart, and they're fundamentally altering people's lives in ways that they can never get back. And maybe beyond that, the assumption is that the society, the competitive kind of um, hyper-toxic individualized society that we have is kind of perfect. And um, and and therefore, we're not actually looking at some of the things that um, we could improve. And I think you, I think your book, Vicky and Maya, goes into that direction, you know, really powerfully. Um, what are some of the real alternatives, not the body camera, you know, kind of ankle monitoring alternatives, but what could we really imagine, and what would it take to build a process toward that? Well, we talk about in our book, we talk about solutions as well, not just abstract solutions, but work that's being done by people in various locations uh, around, you know, around the country. So uh, one of the things that Mariam Kaba, a prison abolitionist who we interviewed early on, maybe was one of our first interviews for our book, talks about is how you can't think of taking this giant puzzle piece that's mass incarceration of 2.2 million people in prison and taking this piece out and then having a piece that is the same size go in. It is actually not, you know, a one-to-one substitution. Uh, Instead, we need to think about what are the, the pathways that, you know, built this giant puzzle piece. And then how do we start, you know, chiseling away at this? And uh, how do we start dismantling this while also addressing why people end up in the prison system. There's white supremacy, there's capitalism, uh, there's poverty, there's uh, gendered violence and misogyny and transphobia and homophobia. So how do we start dismantling those systems? And at the same time, how do we also create resources and supports that help people, you know, that help people survive and thrive in our society? So some of the ways that, you know, that we interviewed people about have to do with what do you do uh, instead of X, Y, or Z. One of, the, one of the answers that came to us again and again, particularly by people who had been criminalized and put into these quote-unquote kinder, gentler types of confinement because of this net widening is nothing. If somebody is not you know, bothering anybody or hurting somebody, just leave them alone. This is what we were told by uh, Monica Jones, who was arrested and uh, criminalized under Arizona's program of um, Arizona's police program had a program called Project Rose in which police and social workers 
went around on the streets of Phoenix and rounded up people that they suspected were sex workers engaging in sex work. And this, they mostly targeted women of color and trans women of color. And then you were brought to a church. You were not brought to the precinct. You were not read your rights. And then you were told you can either go into this sex worker rescue program or we can take you to the precinct and book you and you will be facing uh, sex worker criminal charges. And in Arizona, I believe it's uh, 30 days for your first conviction, 60 days for your next conviction, 90 days for your third conviction. And with your fourth conviction, it transforms from a misdemeanor to a felony. So looking at those odds, a lot of people said, you know, I think I'll take this diversion program. But the diversion program didn't give you a job at the end of it. It didn't give you a house. It didn't give you childcare. You know, like it didn't solve any of the reasons why somebody might say sex work is a better option than McDonald's. It didn't magically erase racism and give them a special bubble that, you know, employers wouldn't say like, gee, you know, I'd hire you, except I don't like black people or, you know, gee, I am racist. So I'm going to pay you less than, you know, somebody else. It didn't do any of these things. Basically, what it did was say, you are bad for doing sex work. Don't do sex work. Go work someplace else. Uh, So what would replace that program? Well, we just shouldn't have a replacement for that program. You know, in, you know, if we were talking about distribution of resources, what could replace that program? Perhaps just giving people money. We've seen this with the stimulus checks, right? Give people money to live on, you know, provide affordable and accessible housing for people. But what we don't need is another one-to-one replacement of, you know, what could replace uh, coercive drug treatment? Perhaps not coercing people into going into drug treatment, And then for the people who do want some sort of treatment and counseling, figuring out what that looks like, but then you don't have tens and hundreds of thousands of people funneling through these institutions that basically confine them, tell them what to do, when to eat, when to get up to go to group, when they can go to the bathroom. No, you cannot call your home. No, you cannot see your family. No, you cannot wear your own shoes, you know, and treating them as if they are, uh, a very, very controlled and abused child, and then saying, great, you've been sober for 60 days, bye. Um, and then, you know, and not addressing this. So perhaps we, what we need to think about is nothing for many of these coercive programs. And then for other, uh, and then for actual harm and violence, figuring out in community, as Maya said, getting to know your neighbors, getting to know your community, you know, what needs to be addressed. Um, In the wake of anti-Asian violence attacks in Oakland, uh, some members of Black Lives Matter have actually started doing uh, not patrols, but escorts where people are coming home from work. Asian Americans are coming home from work or people of Asian descent, and they escort them to where they need to go, because in that way, there's somebody else there and they are less likely to be targeted by racial violence. They're not calling for increased policing. They're not saying, you know, okay, we can have policing for this, you know, particular type of violence which is on the rise and is very real and it makes people very afraid. But they're saying like, how do we create the society that we want? Um, I do not know if any of these people have meat cleavers. I suspect not, but <laughs> um, but th- there is this like, you know, like how do we create this world if we cannot eradicate the racism that's driving some of these people to attack Asian people? How do we at least make sure these people are safe in the interim? while we do this longer term work of trying to uproot this kind of racism and xenophobia. 
I, I love that example. I love both the doing nothing, mm-hmm. uh, which again and again, and I think folks who aren't even paying close attention to some of the issues you all are into will notice that a lot of the videos we see of young black people being confronted by the police who haven't done anything that leads to a, you know, a kind of fatal encounter doing nothing would be the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. You didn't need to stop that guy for jaywalking. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and you give so many great examples of that. But the example you just gave, Vicki, I'd love to hear a little more of those types of things, because I know about the group in, in uh, Oakland. And what, what's so brilliant about it is they're not only being neighbor to neighbor kind of helping, but they're also showing you a, a, a little snapshot into the world we wish we lived in, but we don't live in. And so they're not asking for more police. They're not asking for these, um, you know, for more violence. They're actually saying we could live in a world where we took care of one another and raised our consciousness together and so on. But there are many examples of this in the book, especially towards the end where you you start with the do nothing, which I, I absolutely love as a, <laughs> as a uh, harm reduction. But maybe a couple of more uh, examples of the kinds of work that is going on that points us toward the world we wish we lived in. Yeah. So the reason why Vicky and I looked at so many different specific examples is that, you know, there's no blueprint. There's just looking at your mm-hmm. community and saying, what would work here? what's been done in the past that we might adapt, what are the resources we have. So one example that we looked at was the Audre Lorde Project's Safe Outside the System program, which was spearheaded by Ejeris Dixon and a number of other organizers. And that initiative was started because many of the people who were involved were queer and trans people of color, particularly black people who are like, the police are not going to help me anyway. Like my solution to harm Mm -hmm. and violence couldn't be the police because calling the police might actually very well result in harm to me, you know? And so these questions started being asked and they, they started thinking through, well, what can we do to build systems within our neighborhood that are gonna bring the community together to respond to acts of harm and violence and also prevent acts of harm and violence. And particularly strengthening the ties between neighbors and also mobilizing local businesses and community centers and those types of places that are already gathering spaces already, places of bringing people together to be active in preventing harm and violence and also providing like a safe haven for people. And so they did outreach to local community centers and churches and mosques and businesses. And they asked these locations to become safe spaces that would be kind of designated with a sticker and they would go through trainings on how to respond to violence, how to do types of interventions and how to be places that were welcoming and safe, particularly for queer and trans people of color. And so 
they started by kind of approaching approaching community spaces that they already knew, but then they also just went into neighborhood businesses and were like, hey, this is what's going on. And they went to board meetings and the community learned about what other groups were doing and started kind of figuring out, well, what would it look like to provide refuge to someone who's actually fleeing violence? You know, what would it look like to be a space someone could come to if they weren't feeling safe on the street? And so they did these trainings. A lot of it was like having conversations and really built up this know-how in the community so that places really felt comfortable doing that type of thing and were doing that type of thing on a regular basis. And it wasn't about everyone agreeing, you know, everyone being like, okay, we're going to follow this manual exactly. It was about people developing certain skills and strategies and then figuring out how, how to implement them in the ways they could. And Another another program we looked at was Rachel Herzing, who's a co-founder of Critical Resistance, did this pilot program also in Oakland, actually called Build the Block. And I love this. Like, I'm trying to do a tiny mini version of this in my building. It's not working quite yet. <laughs> but but that's but that's they, part of the lesson, exactly. isn't it? That it doesn't work automatically. It's a it's a process. Exactly. So in this neighborhood, this this pilot project, build the block, was working to build concrete alternatives to calling nine one one. So they created a neighborhood directory. And in that directory, they were looking at both needs. So everyone shared, these are the needs that I have. I have young children. I have an elderly parent who has Alzheimer's. I have these particular mental health needs, that type of thing. And then also, what are the assets for everyone? So this is a directory that's not just phone numbers. It's what do people need and what do they have to give? So they learned that one of the neighbors was trained as an emergency medical worker and could could actually provide that type of assistance and help if someone just gave him a call. And they learned that some people in the community spoke all kinds of different languages and were willing to do interpretation. They learned that there were people who were trained in restorative justice and trained in conflict resolution, and they could come in and provide those skills if they needed them. So they started building this system within their community for how they could respond to emergencies and harm and conflict. And so, and the idea of this is, well, not like, oh, we don't need any external resources. Certainly we need, you know, food and housing and medical care and all of those resources. Like it's not a replacement for that, but it's about mobilizing how we can take care of each other in all these other ways that we're we're taught to think only the criminal legal system can address. Or only the professionals. Right, I mean, only that, the, the professionals, you know, so the professionalized. Yes. Yeah, I, I, re- I remember a study from years ago in Massachusetts. Massachusetts had the most far-reaching social services for the deaf in the country in the early 50s. Mm. But they also had an anomaly, an island off of Massachusetts, 
every third person was born deaf. Mm. And some researchers from Harvard compared the two communities in terms of every measure you could think of. Um, how were the deaf doing on the mainland? How are the deaf doing on the island? They were doing much better on the island where they didn't have any services, but it was because part of being human was being deaf. They had they had organized their own sense of of, of sign language. They had, and, and and so on every measure, whether it was suicide or or um, employment or uh, alcoholism or anything. The deaf on the island were better because they were part of the human community. And mm -hmm. as I was reading your book, I kept thinking of examples like that, where it's not either criminalizing or medicalizing mm -hmm. situations, but actually allowing humanity to be human and finding a way to build the structures that can support each other in all of our weird humanness. Right. I mean, yes. something like that. Yeah. What I'm really interested in, in you explaining is transformative justice and the ways in which um, toxic individualism is part of our problem. Part of our problem is instant answers or prefabricated programs, or as you say in the book again and again, you know, filling the same space. Mm -hmm. So you close a prison and open something that's exactly the same footprint. So I'd love for you to talk about that and maybe reference the sex registry, which I think is an electric issue for many, many people. When you say eliminate the sex registry, that is something that, that people have to think hard about, Be not because the sex registry makes any sense, but because it's become part of our, I don't know what, part of our, the fabric of our culture. So maybe say a word about that and transformative justice. Yeah, it's such a, like you said, it's this, this hot button issue that at various times has united conservatives and liberals that, well, of course, everyone's against sexual violence. So everyone's against, um, you know, these people who've been convicted of sexual violence and therefore in favor of the sex offender registry. And that's something that Joe Biden also participated in, like so many Democrats. And one thing that I think is really important to mention when we talk about these registries is that they were justified by particularly horrific acts of violence, usually against children. And it, it became this emotional thing. You name the law connected with whatever registry it is after the child, you know, and then it's like, well, how could you oppose such a thing? So the mother actually, I think one of one of the most interesting stories around this is the mother of the boy who was named in the legislative act that first established the National Sex Offender Registry, Jacob Wetterling, Crimes Against Children, um, Sex Offender Registry Act or something, now actually condemns the registry. And so Jacob Wetterling was the victim of a horrible rape and murder. His mother undertook a lot of lobbying efforts uh, in Minnesota, and then they established one of the earliest public sex offender registries in the United States. Other states then followed. There are registries now in every single state in the country and federally. 
And the Jacob Wetterling Act is the federal legislation, which uh, I think requires states to form registries. Now, there is no research showing that sex offender registries work to prevent sexual violence. Mm -hmm. A registry is a public list of people who've been convicted of sex offenses that can severely limit where you live, who you can associate with, whether you can use the internet. In some cities, it is nearly impossible to find a place that is legal to live if you're on the registry. And explain explain why that's true. Well, it's because the registry will say you can't be within a certain distance from a school or a playground or a church or anywhere that children could be, which is anywhere. So in some places, you know, there's like a couple blocks that you could live if you're on the registry. So many people just end up living under a bridge. And meanwhile, As you mentioned, Bill, the public availability of the registry leaves people really vulnerable to vigilante violence and family members are ostracized. Children of people on the registry are ostracized. And in a lot of states, people are just permanently on the registry like that's it for life. So the reason I mentioned Jacob Wetterling is his mother actually, who had lobbied for these registries, looked at the impact that the registries were having on people and in the past few years renounced her support for them because Mm, interesting yeah because this process of labeling people sex offenders and cutting them off from community support doesn't prevent violence it actually causes violence and what she ended up saying which i thought was so powerful is what we really want is no more victims And these registries are really creating victims. Um, Mm. And a lot of states like you see Texas is adding new names to its registry every day and people can't get off the registry. And so it's just for life. So someone, I think it was in the Austin Statesman, compared Texas's registry to a cemetery and I think that's such mm. a perfect analogy that it just expands, expands, yeah. expands. You can check in, but you can't check mm. out. Yes. Um, do, do you know? Do you know Russell Banks's book, uh, "Lost Memory of Skin"? Yeah. That's a book that really moved me, and I recommend it. I think it's a a powerful story about the sex registry and these two characters, the professor and the kid, who exactly live under a bridge in Miami, mm. and uh, it's an extraordinary fictionalized version of the horrors of that and the and in many ways the irrational insanity. The other thing I've always wondered is why is that the crime that has to be registered but not homicide or armed robbery or you know I mean and I feel like oh I don't want to even say that cuz that that'll be next, you know. <laughs> Vicky, you were going to also yes. say something about so, about uh, uh, transformative, transformative justice. I mean, I also yeah. wanted to just add to what Maya said is that also what the sex the idea of sex offender registry to protect children from child sexual abuse leaves out is that the majority of children who are sexually abused are abused by somebody close to them, a family member, a family friend, somebody in the community, like somebody who's part of their religious community. Um, And what the idea of relying on policing and prisons and sex offender registry leaves out too, is that 
many children who have survived child sexual abuse don't want that person who has harmed them to be arrested or to go to jail or to be torn away from their lives, especially if that person is a loved one. What they want is the harm to stop. Um, Aisha Shahida Simmons did a beautiful anthology called Love With Accountability. The with is capitalized. Mm. Um, in which she and many others, black people who are survivors of child sexual abuse, talk about their experiences of child sexual abuse and look at um, transforming the conditions that enable that child sexual abuse. So knowing that the prison system disproportionately eats up and devastates black families and black communities. And, you know, as adults not wanting to be part of perpetuating that system or calling for more laws and more policies that tear their families and communities apart, but also as people who as children were harmed by those closest to them and wanting that harm to stop and having to grapple with those, those feelings of shame and hurt and anger and, you know, this uh, fear of, you know, people who are supposed to be protecting them. So sex offender registries don't address any of that. What happens when it is your loved one? It assumes that it is the scary person in a van that's going to jump out and kidnap you Mm, and assault your child. It doesn't deal with the fact that we live in a country where children are not believed. Children are not taught my body my myself, you know, my body, my privacy. I don't feel like giving Uncle Bob a hug. I don't feel like giving, mm. you know, grandma a kiss. You know, I don't want anybody to touch me today or ever. Like right. it, we do, it glosses over all of the conditions that lead to children feeling like they don't have autonomy over their bodies. Adults feeling like they can, uh, children don't have autonomy over their bodies. Uh, children right. not being believed, children not wanting to say something that gets a loved one taken away from their homes. So do you know the, mm -hmm. do you know the children's book? Uh, It's my, uh, don't touch me. It's my body. Do you know that children's book? I don't. This was a book that we used uh, when I was a teacher in New York. It was Mm -hmm. a beautiful book. And what brought it to my mind, Vicki is it's not about sex abuse. It's about being in the grocery store and the guy in the fruit section, just liking to tickle you. And you say, no, no, it's my body. Mm. Don't touch me. And it's, it's, it's kind of repeating the mantra Mm -hmm. that if grandpa wants to give you a kiss and you don't want to have a kiss, Mm -hmm. it's my body. No, thank you. You know, and, and just giving five-year-olds, four-year-olds, the the language that says exactly what you said. It's my body. Yes. Yes. And I think that that leads into what we're going to talk about, about transformative justice, which is changing the conditions that enable the harm. So one of the conditions that enables this harm and the silence around child sexual abuse is this idea that children don't have autonomy over their bodies. Children are taught Mm. from an early age, you don't have autonomy over your bodies. We're taught, you know, don't let somebody touch you in your private parts area, but you're not taught what to do when that somebody might be grandpa or grandma that you just had to give a hug and a kiss to, even though you didn't want Mm. to, you know, there's Mm. no sense of like, you know, like how do we transform those conditions? So transformative justice is a way of looking at how to address harm and violence and trauma, not from this idea of you must rip this person out of the community and put them in a cage or put them in a somewhere else, uh, which is what Mariam Kaba calls all of these alternatives, is a somewhere else that is not here. And instead, is I'm going to actually read um, the definition by Generation 5, which was a Bay Area organization 
dedicated to ending child sexual abuse without relying on policing in prisons. Um, and they define transformative justice as an approach to respond to and prevent child sexual abuse and other forms of violence that puts transformation and liberation at the heart of the change. It is an approach that looks at the individual and community experiences, as well as the social conditions, and looks to integrate both personal and social transformation. So mm, when we look good. at transformative justice, we don't look at what happened between the two people, the person who caused the harm and the person who experienced the harm, but we look at what enabled that. So again, if we're thinking about child sexual abuse, what are the conditions that enable this abuse to be happening? You know, uh, not just person A did this to person B, but what are the conditions that allow these kinds of behaviors to continue and to be, you know, hushed up or, you know, not believed or, you know, allowed to be continued. And then if we look at other types of harm and abuse, I mean, we live in a culture where sexual abuse and sexual violence is rampant. And the prison system in all of its formations from uh, locking people up to putting them on the sex offender registry to putting them on electronic monitoring has not stopped this. Um, but we also live in a society where people who are very rich and powerful, a la the Harvey Weinsteins, the Jeffrey Epsteins, the Bill Cosbys, you know, are allowed to sexually abuse people and sexually assault people with impunity. And it is known by many, many people. You know, it's like there, there have been whisper campaigns about all of these people for decades because we live in a society where some people are allowed to abuse with impunity because they have power, they have money, they have the ability to open doors and opportunities for people who are willing to go along with their agenda. Instead of saying we should live in a society where everybody's bodily autonomy is sacred and people should not be allowed to harm them. And even if you are a giant movie mogul or America's favorite dad, you should not be allowed to do these things to people. And, you know, we need to work to transform those conditions too, so that people feel like they are somehow exempt from mm. this supposed prohibition we have on causing harm and causing violence. So transformative justice is not just, um, I am called a racist name in the supermarket and I bash somebody over the head and then we go to, uh, you know, some sort of mediation and we say like, well, you know, you say sorry because you call this person a racist name and you could say sorry because, you know, uh, you bash that person in the head and they have a concussion. You know, it's that like, what are the underlying conditions that we need to transform? Gotcha. What is all the racism that is, you know, behind that attack? And then also it might be that person just lost their job and it's just like, meh, right. you know, I hate Chinese people. They stole our jobs, you know, and it's like, well, what are these underlying conditions mm. for this as well. So everyone has changed, mm -hmm. not, not just, it's not just a matter of harm. It's like everyone has changed and the context mm -hmm. has changed. I, I want to point out though, Vicki, that you moved from a cleaver to a concussion. Mm. I was, I think you've made progress <laughs> <laughs> in the last hour because uh, the cleaver was a very excited image, but, um, but no, that's a very helpful explanation. And I think that that what you're pointing to and, and what the book does brilliantly is it talks about no quick fixes, but rather processes and 
I mean, urgency, not I, when I say no quick fixes, I don't mean it's not urgent, but there is a sense that there is a process that's deeper than simply bringing an ankle monitor or ending cash bail. It's much deeper than that. And it really requires us to get at the narratives that dominate our lives, narratives of white supremacy, narratives of, you know, hyper competitiveness and so on, which I think I think. Um, you do a brilliant, brilliant job of. I want to point to two other quick things. One is that um, Angela Davis said uh, to to my son Chesa, um, she was talking about uh, advice of what to do when there's harm in the community. And she didn't go into it in quite the depth that you all are, but she said a very funny thing. She said she was talking to a neighbor and he said, if somebody's breaking into your house, he was a firefighter in the neighborhood. And he said, if somebody's breaking into your house, call the fire department. The sirens will come without the guns. <laughs> and I thought that was kind of kind of adorable because I think one of the reforms, you, you all are very, very um, strong at saying these reforms can be worse than the, you know, than the thing they're replacing. And certainly the idea that we're going to train police in mm -hmm. how to recognize a mental crisis, why have it be an armed agent of the state. Why not think of it very differently, which you all do, I think, brilliantly. Um, one other book, again, at the risk of being professorial. Do you know the book After, the novel After by Francine Prose? Yeah. Okay, put it on your book of books. It's a, it's a, it's a great read. It's a short little novel, and it, it takes place, it opens in a school uh, where every kid's phone, cell phone suddenly blows up and everybody's parent is calling them because there was a school shooting 20 miles down the road and they're calling to see if the kids are okay. And the novel is about what happens after a school shooting. And what happens is they bring in a counselor who turns out to be a fascist and, and, the, and, the, and the school turns into a fascist concentration camp, all in the name of we're here to help. Right. And, and I think you would really, really admire the book. It, it, you get into a lot of those kinds of examples in this book. Um, that sounds you'd like so this good. You know, I have to say, I so when I was in high school, it was when Columbine happened and yes. there was actually a small school shooting at my high school and where someone was shot. And the response to it was bringing the police into the school. We previously had had security guards, but not police with guns. So then we had police with guns in our school. Everyone was terrified because there are people with guns walking around the school all the time. Shifted the school culture substantially. And then, you know, a few years later was when my sister was arrested in school, ultimately starting this chain that destroyed her life. Mm -hmm. And I think about that all the time, how the catalyst for bringing in the police was this school shooting. <laughs> and right. how, like, when we think about the responses to things, we have to get so much more creative. We have to get so much more, I think, in touch with like self-reflection and community reflection in terms of like, how are we actually going to solve these problems? <laughs> you know, absolutely. Like, what are we going to yeah, do to address the actual problems? 
No, and if the default answer is always the police and always criminal justice, you know, you look at at uh, San Francisco, look at Chicago, or look at New York. Um, every the, the last entitlement is criminal justice. There's no yes. library. There's no school. Mm-hmm. There's no you know. And the last thing you have an opportunity to get is a place in jail, and it's a frightening kind of. Uh, degradation but i think what's in, what's important in and i think you all do such a brilliant job of it is it's not that people are ill-intentioned but they're floating along on some assumptions that are really really not valid and not helpful if our goal is a society that cares for one another in which people can thrive uh, these things don't do it and i think you do the best job of exposing the the weaknesses of all these liberal reforms so I really urge everyone to read Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms, and learn something and then get busy in projects of repair, which I think is what you all uh, do all the time. So <laughs> I just can't thank you enough for joining me. Um, I admire your work so much. I've admired it for a long time. And keep at it. And let's keep talking. Thank you so much for having us Bill, this was a, a great conversation. I yes. wish we could go oh, on, thanks, but we've Bill. been going on for an hour. Nikki, you want to say, say a quick word? Yes, thanks, Bill, so much again for, for having us on and for all the work that you do and for uh, also for getting my daughter's name right. Bravo. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate you. Listen, thank Will you do. both so much. Have a okay. great, great weekend. Bye. Yes. Bye-bye. Before we say goodbye for today, I do have a homework assignment. Look around. Make an inventory of sites of control and surveillance that you can see and think about the ones you take for granted that have become invisible parts of your landscape or the ones that might be there but that you can't see. Name five spots where you're being spied on. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger from the podcast Ergo, and to Malik Aleem, producer, co-conspirator, fighter, and engineer. Under the Tree is hosted and written by Bill Ayers, produced and edited by me, Malik Aleem. Theme music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. This week's poetry beat is by Maverick Myers. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website site oh yes very nice.com and don't forget to rate review and subscribe to under the tree wherever you listen to podcasts go forward keep rising and make your life a bridge to the possible with joy in my heart and freedom on my mind until next time